I read comics, show number 80. There's nothing like starting off the new year by being sick. Everybody that I work with has been sick, and most of my friends have been sick, so I'm sick now too, and apologies in advance if this is a less coherent podcast than usual, but I don't know how you could actually tell the difference, come to think of it. The other reason that there was a gap between the last one and this one is that um, my other podcast, this Star Trek one, we actually did a little live performance of some of our stuff from it in an effort to maybe take it on the road and do a real live show, and it went really well, but... There's a lot of work to rehearse it and get it all together and then do the actual performance. So anyway, I've got a whole bunch of things to talk about here, and I want first to get the uh, public service announcements through before I forget them. The first one is that WonderCon is coming up. It's at the end of February, so it's February 27th, 28th, and then March 1st. And as before, there is a podcasting panel, which is on February 28th. It's on Saturday, and it's from 5 to 6.30, 90 minutes. And I'll be there with the good boys from the iFanboy podcast. So we haven't quite decided what we're going to do yet. We're trying to make it different than last year because we've done the panel where we say, here's podcasting, what do you want to know, like three or four times now, and it's getting kind of boring. So we think we're going to try to have a lot more audience participation for this one and actually do it as a joint podcast between uh, me and them. So we are putting that together. It'll definitely be appearing in the programming schedule. But if you are all interested in coming to hear me and the iFanboy guys, that's when we're going to be there, Saturday from 5 to 6.30. And I'm going to be around during the day before that doing interviews and going to see some of the other panels. So I will definitely be available. And if anybody wants to meet up or if you are an artist and you want me to come see you and talk to you down on the floor, I would be delighted to do that. So just get in touch with me and send me some email about that. Uh, That's coming up at the end of February. So I will keep putting up announcements um, and I'll put it on the blog as well so that people can find out where that's going. The other thing that I wanted to talk about in terms of news, just very briefly, is that the three-boot version of The Legion is ending. I think uh, the last issue is just coming out right now. And I had been such a fan of that version all through Mark Wade writing it, and then, as you well know, I really hate what Jim Shooter did to it. And I'm kind of glad it's over. I'm really hoping that at some point that version of The Legion comes back written by somebody else. They, I've seen scans of these last couple issues posted over on Scans Daily because I can't be bothered buying it, and I wouldn't be giving DC my money for that anyway. And it looks like it ends pretty much as stupidly as I thought it would. I hate what they did with the art. I hate what they did to the characters. And, you know, whatever happened to Cosmic Boy? I don't know. He's gone. He's not coming back. So I'm sad. I'm sad that that Legion is over. But I'll always have the trade paperbacks to keep me company. Now, I have some books here that I actually sent away for that I want to spend a little bit of time talking about, but I actually want to throw this open to you guys. So I spent money and sent away for Ditko comic books, new Ditko comic books. I talked before about how I had gotten the book about Ditko, Ditko, this biography and kind of overview of his work, which I have read again, and I think I'll talk about it next time. But 
as I think I mentioned, it's very light on the work that he's done in the last 10 or 15 years. Now, granted, he hasn't done that much work, but he has been self-publishing these pamphlets, almost, that are almost exclusively about his um, Ayn Randian objectivism. And I really wanted to see what this stuff was about. So, courtesy of uh, a site that I'll link to that's all about Ditko, I found out where the address was, and I wrote off a check, and I ordered a bunch of stuff. So here's what I got. I got um, Steve Ditko's Avenging Mind, which is essentially um, a whole bunch of essays. And I'll get to those on another show, but it's just off the top of his head kind of stuff. And it's mostly in regard to Marvel and Stan Lee and things like that. And then there's a little bit of comic book actually drawn stuff at the end. There is Ditko Continued, which is the newest thing, and that's all comics, and that's what I'm going to talk about in a second. There is another thing called Ditko Etc., which came out last year, which is all comics. But should clarify, when I say comics, they're not really stories. They're more like one-pagers that either introduce characters or concepts, and then sometimes there's a story that's three or four pages long where the character has stuff that happens. It's all black and white, it's, and the covers are nice and glossy, but the insides are printed on uh, fairly cheap newsprint kind of stuff. And then the last thing is an actual book called Steve Ditko's Static, which was a real comic book that he put out with a real publisher, and it came out very sporadically for a while um, in the 80s, and now it's all been collected up in this one volume. So I haven't started reading that yet, but that looks to me more like you know a real trade paperback. It's 160 pages, which is pretty good. So I'm looking forward to it. So here's what I did. And if Steve Ditko knew that I had done this, he would come to my house and probably try to kick the shit out of me. He probably could, even though he's like an old man now. But I scanned in completely, Ditko continued, and I've put it up at that um, storage vault toucan place where I keep all the other things that I've uploaded. It's a PDF, and all the PDF pages are joined together. I apologize for the quality of the scans. Um, as I said, it's on cheap paper, and you have it, it's very hard to scan that without some bleed-through, although I tried to do the best that I could, and I didn't bother trying to crop the pages to make them look pretty or anything. So if you'd like to read this, it's 32 pages, it's all new, none of it is reprinted, and I scanned it from cover to cover. I would love people to go and read through this thing and tell me what they think about it. I'm going to tell you what I think, but I'm really interested in knowing what other people think. My general impression of what Ditko's been doing for the last couple years is that he's officially crossed over from comic book artist into cranky old man. And I use that term cranky in all the ways that you could possibly mean it in that he really seems to be in a bad mood. And plus, he is crossing into crank territory that is, you know, Neil Adams' kind of view of the world, which is different from the way everybody else views it. And you know what? Maybe all objectivists are like that, and I just don't know about it. But it's very strange to read this book. Okay, so let me tell you what's in it. It starts off with a story called The Partners, and it's... um, how many pages do we have here? Four pages, and it, it's a to-be-continued, so it doesn't end. And it's about a woman who decides that she has an opportunity to, as it says right here on the front page, make a million dollars illegally. So she figures out that she can't do it alone. She's got to have a partner, hence the title of the story. So she talks this guy into being her partner in gaining a million dollars illegally. And the rest of the story is them plotting how they're going to do this. And 
at the end, it looks like maybe somebody gets caught. Now, here's the weird thing, and you really have to read this. I don't think I can do a very good job of describing it. He has a technique that he's done in a lot of other stories, and this totally goes along with the objectivism black and white thing, where the good characters are... How do I explain this? It's all black and white. The good characters are clean looking and the bad characters are all scribbly looking. That is, they literally have scribbles over their their bodies and their faces. Like he's drawn a character and then taken the pen and doodled all over them so that they look really messy. So that's how you can tell the good and bad characters apart. And that's, you know, A is A or A is not A. You're either black or you're white. There's nobody who's in between. And they speak in these very sort of elliptical abstract terms that people don't really talk like so sometimes I have a really hard time figuring out what's going on so the woman in the first panel she says what an opportunity to make a million dollars illegally and she thinks no too risky unless and she looks around her office at the nice clean people I don't want to say white people although I guess they are white and she thinks her hmm, him hmm, still risky next page Yes, yes, it can be pulled off, but I'd need a partner. Who? Who? So she spies a guy who has kind of a sour look on his face, and she thinks, yes, I bet he's corruptible. And so they're talking, and she says, as a theory, what do you think? And he says, evil mind. Wait, I think you already have it planned out, but you need a partner for crucial details. And now his face has the scribbly lines all over it, so you can tell he's crossed over to the dark side. And then he says, I want half, partner. And she says, of course, partner. And then the two of them look at another worker in the office who's clean. And the man says, and she's our fall person. Too bad. The woman thinks, too bad for her, not for us. It's good. And then they go through the rest of it. So it's all set up for them to commit some crime that's illegal and to make somebody else the fall person. Here's... The weirdest part about it is you don't know what they're doing. You don't know how they're going to steal a million dollars. Are they going to kill somebody? Are they going to cook the books? Are they going to hold up a bank? Are they going to steal, you know, the idol like Indiana Jones? Are are they going to, you know, pry gold out of people's teeth? It's so abstract that you can't figure out exactly how they're planning on getting this million dollars in this generic office setting. You can't tell what people are doing in this office. Are they working in a bank, an insurance company? Are they a graphic design firm? You know, is this the headquarters of uh, Safeway food stores? It's it's so unclear. And it gets more unclear as you go along when they actually sort of figure out how to commit their crime. There's a little four panel here where they're going to do the crime And it's the outside of a building, and all you you see is word balloons coming out. So it's somebody inside the building going, ah, no, no, ah, ah, ah. And then the next morning, they think, oh, wait, we can't go through with it. And one of them is saying, I just can't do it. And the other one says, no, no, we have to do it. So what did they do in the night? Did they kill somebody? And if they did, why, why aren't the police there the next morning? Did they beat somebody up and steal their money? You can't tell. Okay, I can't tell. Maybe one of you can tell me exactly what they do. And then at the end, the guy, I guess it's the guy, is like hiding the money and gets caught by a cop. And then down at the bottom it says, continued. So, bad people do a bad thing and now they're about to get caught. Okay. And I'm assuming that those two people are going to double cross each other somehow. That's 
story number one. Story number two isn't really a story. It's a one-pager of a guy who does the same thing as I just described to you. So in the first panel, it's just a head. He's a floating head. He's like the great and powerful Oz. He thinks, it's wrong, but I want it. Next panel, he says, I can get away with it. And now he's starting to have that scribbly line over his face. Third panel, others accept wrong, so it's okay. I'd be a fool not to take advantage of a sure thing. <laughs> now his face is all covered with scribbly lines. Yeah, I made a deal. Yeah, partners with all the unearned and undeserved. Ha ha ha, I got away with it. And then in the very last panel, there's a light shining on his face and all the scribbly lines have gone away and the light is supposed to be truth, facts, reason, logic, justice, rights, A is A. And he's thinking, it's not fair. And there's sweat dripping off his face. What does that mean? I don't get it. It's bad to do bad things. Okay. Um, next panel, I'm not going to go through the whole issue, but just to tell you. Oh, one other thing I learned about Steve Ditko by going through these books is that he really hates comic book fans. Oh, man, does he hate comic book fans. If you're a comic book fan, he hates you, and he hates me too. And if he knew that I was reading out from his comic book to you guys and making it available for you to read, man, would he hate me. And that's why I say he would come to my house and beat me up. Uh, he, he says that this is the way fans think. It's called The Theater of the Foolish Fans, and there's a guy up on stage. He's called The Accuser, and he says, I accuse him of not giving me an autograph, not signing my comic books, not giving interviews. Next one is The Weeper, and it's someone crying. He has no pity, no mercy, no feeling, no guilt, no gratifying my whims, wants. I'm entitled. Wah. The next one is The Pseudo. And this guy says, Ha! He can't prove the invisible, the nothing doesn't exist, like uh, something. He can't prove the something is not positive. I dare him. And then in the last one, it's a believer. And this guy says, I believe it because I believe it. So it is true because I believe it. And everybody else is going, yes, me too. So I guess in his mind, those are the four types of fans. And, you know, of course there are people like that in the world, but I don't think that those stereotypes are unique to comic book fans by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I guess that's how he sees us, all of us. And um, it kind of goes on like that. There's a very long story in here uh, that doesn't have a name. Oh, it's called The Outline. And it's, again, about two people who decide to commit a crime. And then they end up double-crossing each other. And uh, they shoot each other at the end. And they die. You know, that's... Uh, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but back when I was writing more fanfic in the Star Trek circles with my friends who all had wicked senses of humor. Um, we decided once upon a time that the best ending to any stupid Star Trek story was to say, and then they all died. And that's kind of the way these Ditko stories end. You know, these two people commit a crime, they double cross each other, and then they shoot each other, and then they all die. And then it's over. And <laughs> it's like, did he just like run out of ideas or something? And then they all died is the end you come up with when you can't think of anything else that could happen, so you just kill them all. Um, so, by perusing these, he's created these characters, um, his, this cast of characters. So one of them is called the Grey Negotiator, and that's this kind of fey-looking guy who um, says that there is no ultimate right or wrong and everything is to be negotiated. And he um, often gets things done for these two bad guys named Force and Violence who would do exactly what you would think that they would do. And they are often set in opposition to the hero who has big H's all over his clothes because he's the hero. And then there's another thing called the cape, which is sort of a Doctor Strange-looking-ish cape. 
that switches people from one place to another or switches people in their body. So there's another story that's just called The Cape, and it's about a crook who's going to shoot a guy with money, and so the cape switches their places um, so they can see uh, what the other one's life is like, and in the end, guess what? They shoot each other and they all die. Um, <laughs> what else can I say? The hero appears in the end, and he he basically beats up some bad guys. Um, and I, you know, I will say, for all that the art in these is is very sketchy. I mean, this looks like somebody's sketchbook. This isn't finished comic book art. Ditko can still draw a pretty good fight scene, you know, and there are still Ditko hands to be found, which is good to see. And he has some nice action in here where things are getting uh, pretty hot and heavy as the the hero is kicking the shit out of these bad guys. So I kind of like that. And then the very last story in here actually has Mr. A show up again. And by now, crazily enough, Mr. A has some kind of mental powers where he just terrifies people by handing them that black and white card. And that's what he does in this story. There's a guy who has committed a crime where he's stolen probably a million dollars because that's the number that often turns up in these Ditko stories. And that's, I guess, the figure that people would do anything for a million dollars. He's thinking, it's just good for me and bad for others. Suckers deserve it. Mr. A just pops up in his room and he hands him the card that was white and then it turns back. And this guy totally freaks out. I mean, he's got sweat coming off of him like he's in a manga book. And he just totally loses his mind. Um, And by the end, he's just standing there raving and ranting at Mr. A, holding the black card. And then, uh, oh, it's another to-be-continued story. So somebody shows up at the end. Anyway, that's Ditko Continued. So I would love it if you guys would go (coughs) and grab it and read it and tell me what you think and tell me if it makes any more sense to you than it did to me. Um, I'm hoping that the others have a little more content in them and it's not just this kind of somebody lecturing to you all the time, but maybe that's what it is and maybe that's what he thinks his comics are now is just saying black is black and white is white and there is no in-between and everybody should live their lives that way. And I think, as I mentioned before, to me, that's great as a philosophy, but there's no way you could actually live your life like that because nothing in life is black and white. Everything is shades of gray. You can never, ever have a situation where it's completely black or completely white and there is no other point of view. Even when people do horrific, heinous things, you know, in their minds, it's not. Because whatever, they've managed to justify it so they have a point of view. And it's not the right point of view, but there it is. And for any crime that you can commit, somebody's going to rationalize that crime. So, of course, there is the good and evil that we construct as a society. And some of that, as evolutionary biologists tell us, is actually innate just because we're mammals and social mammals that live in groups and we instinctively understand that it's bad to kill other people because we wouldn't want them to kill us. After you get past the really basic things, it's mostly social constructs and there's just no black and white when it comes to everyday living. You know, we have laws, we have codes of conduct, but it's, it's never just A is A. There's a lot of times when A is a lot of other things besides A. So that's my take on objectivism. So... Anyway, would love to get your opinions on this. Let me take a little break and come back with some more stuff that's definitely not black and white.
now we have gay porn. Yay! There's nothing like a little gay porn to shake you out of your objectivist doldrums. This is a book called Manly, and it was written by Dale Lazaroff, and um, the art is by Amy Colburn. She did the pencils and some of the inks as well. And Dale Lazaroff, as you might remember, was the co-author of the Sticky series with my man Steve McIsaac, which was another great series of gay porn that was released in comic books and then collected up, and it was just, just wonderful. I loved it. So this is the new series that he's come out with, and Dale was so nice in that he actually tracked me down, contacted me, and sent me a PDF of the book. So thank you, Dale. Thank you so much for sending it along. This is a wonderful book, and it's wonderful for so many reasons. First of all, it's gay porn, and you can't go wrong there. Here are the really interesting things about this book. First of all, it's wordless, so there's no word balloons. People don't talk to each other at all. It's all done via action and expressions on the faces. And Amy Colburn, who's the artist who hasn't done comic books before, did a wonderful job at conveying what's going on in these stories merely by the positioning of the characters and the settings and especially the expressions on their faces. It's just gorgeous. And unlike Sticky, which, um, as I mentioned before, didn't have a lot of color in it. It wasn't black and white. Well, some of it was black and white, but it was mostly color washes. This is very vibrant. It's very comic booky. It almost has this sort of um, Bruce Tim feeling-y to, to the, the way the characters look. It's, it's a little weird because I'm so used to seeing the Steve McIsaac kind of porn or even the Brad Raider kind of porn where the guys are, they look very much like guys in real life. And this is one step beyond that where they look like comic book guys. And you know what? That's okay. I'm totally happy with that. But they don't look like real actual people. They're a little more on the Tom of Finland scale of idealized male forms. But given all that, I will say it's really refreshing to see all the different body types and ages and coloring in this book because that's not what I am used to seeing in this kind of comic book anyway. So there are three stories and each of them is kind of self-contained and they're all about two guys who hook up in various circumstances. So in the first one it's uh, a cop who's like an older guy, he's got gray hair, who hooks up with a a younger blondish um, sort of Thor looking guy and they meet when the Thor guy uh, helps foil a a crime and they meet up and you know guess what they go back to um, Blondie's house and have sex and (laughs) that's the plot but it's it's really well drawn and it's so nice you know what the thing was I noticed about this is that their guys are smiling in almost every story in every panel here they look like they're having such a good time they really do there's no angst and they're not making classic porn face faces they're really having a really good time with each other. It's so refreshing to see that. People smiling in porn, you just don't see that. And I'm not counting head porn where the women are grimacing and not smiling. But that was the one thing I really liked. There's cute little flirtatious looks. There are coy smiles. There's laughing. There's people tickling each other. It's just playful in a way that you don't normally get. You know, the, the Patrick Fillion stuff is... Like, I can't even read that without laughing, but I don't think I'm supposed to be laughing at that because it's so weird with these strange oversized penises. But I don't think he means people to be having fun in his porn. And clearly, Dale Lazaroff and Amy Colburn want people to be having fun in their porn. And they do. These guys look like they're having such a good time. So I have to say, in reading through it, I was smiling too. You can't help it. There's some really nice panel layouts. 
there's lots of different sexual positions. Since it's gay porn, all the guys have huge dicks, and when they come, there's like gallons of stuff all over the place, and you just need to accept that and kind of get past it. That's not like real life either, but you know, it's a comic book, so you can accept it. And in all of three of these stories, they have what I would call a happy ending, which is that the guys are happy with each other and they're snuggling. In fact, in the first story, there's a couple panels where the two of them are sitting on a couch after they've been fucking for a while and looking a little uh, uncomfortable with each other. It's especially funny because the blonde guy's wearing what looks like a woman's pink robe and you're wondering if they're just going to you know, go their separate ways and then the blonde guy reaches over and gives um, the cop a big kiss and then the cop reaches over and gives him a giant smooch and then they're smooching and smooching and in the last panel they're cuddled up together on the couch and they're just kind of hugging each other and looking like they're really in like. Maybe they're not in love but they're deeply in like and it's just so sweet. I really like that. In the second story it's about uh, two boxers and one of them is an older white guy and the other is a younger guy who is, maybe he's black or maybe he's Hispanic, um, darker skin certainly and not a, a white guy. And the older guy is uh, the gym owner who used to be a famous boxer and the younger guy is an up and coming person. So they kind of know each other even though they don't know each other and they're both fans. So this is where they get it on in the, the older guy's, on his desk as a matter of fact, which is kind of cool. Now the interesting thing that happens in this is that um, they're getting hot and heavy and they don't have any condoms. And I will say safe sex is practiced throughout here anyway when they're they're actually fucking each other. I mean there's all kinds of bodily fluids going around all over the place when they're they're not, you know, doing the intercourse thing. Um, so they're not fucking in the typical sense, but they find a lot of other ways um, to to do it. And that's interesting too. Just because you don't have a condom doesn't mean you can't have sex. And they seem to be enjoying it just as much as they would otherwise. In the last story, which is a little bit longer, it's um, it starts off with a series of missed connections. So again, um, two guys, one of whom uh, is a white guy and the other is a, a not white guy, a brownish guy. And I have to say the white guy, he's kind of big and I wouldn't say overweight, but he's got kind of a, a beer gut on him. He reminds me a little bit of Harry Mudd, which was uh, kind of scary as I was going through it. But they see each other a couple of times in the bars and they don't make it. And then finally, uh, it turns out that the white guy is a librarian and the other guy walks into the library one day and finds him. And they start kissing in the stacks and then they go back and they have sex for four or five pages of very, very, very hot sex. And then they end up walking down the street at the end holding hands. It's so sweet. So I really, really, really like this book. Um, and it's a hardcover, and I'm wondering if it's out in trade paperback. I'm not quite sure, but I can definitely recommend this as far as really, really nice, uh, fun, happy gay porn without the angst and without people fucking each other's minds up, because it's really nice to see that once in a while. So, big thumbs up for that. Now, for my last magical trick, I want to talk about Oz, the manga. And this book was a gift from a friend who knows that I'm really, really into Oz. And I had no idea that there was a thing called Oz the Manga. And then recently, somebody on Scans Daily posted a bunch of scans from different instantiations of Oz. And they posted from this one, too. So uh, I have mixed feelings about this particular manga. Clearly, it's aimed at a manga audience, so it's in manga size. And 
Dorothy is drawn like a manga girl. She's got ginormous eyes and a little tiny nose. The rest of the characters are drawn um, kind of as a cross between the way they were originally illustrated in the Oz books and um, what you might expect from a 21st century perspective. So the Tin Man in particular has a very steampunk look to him, which I don't think you would have gotten in any other era of illustration. He's really big and he he looks really Victorian. And that's not what I think that um, Baum was going for in the original Oz book. It was just more like uh, a toy come to life almost, but a serious one. And the lion looks more or less like a real lion, although he talks. And there is no connection between what happens in this manga and the movie. There was very little of it that I could see that was actually taken from the way the, the movie was shot. Certainly not the way Oz looks, and not the way the Emerald City looks. The manga holds to the actual novel pretty closely, although not entirely closely. And I know this because I was inspired to go back and read the book again, which I have right here. And my copy of The Wizard of Oz is a hardcover that was published in uh, 1944 that my grandmother bought and used because it's got the um, dollar marking in the front in pencil. And it's a a very well-used version of it because I think she bought it from my dad and then my brothers all read it and now I have it finally. And the illustrations in this copy uh, are weird because they're a strange mix between the original illustrations and then that were done by W.W. Denslow and then some stuff from the movie like in this version the scarecrow looks like Ray Bolger there's no reason for him to look like that other than that's the way he looked in the movie so if you haven't read the book The Wizard of Oz I don't know it's not for everybody but I really enjoyed it upon reading it again it's not a typical kid story there's a lot of weird stuff that happens in it and some really scary stuff and there is also some adult humor particularly in the wordplay um, and it's a really long story. I had forgotten that so much happens after they kill the Wicked Witch. So it's really a book in two parts where Dorothy and her friends have to go to the Emerald City. They get the uh, mission that they have to kill the Wicked Witch of the West, and they do. And then they come back, and then uh, the wizard isn't able to take Dorothy home, so they have to make this long trek down to see Glinda, who's actually in the book The Good Witch of the South. And all kinds of other shit happens on their way down there, and that's a good, you know more than a quarter of what happens in the book is them going to see Glinda, which is not in the movie at all. She just goes back to the Emerald City and that's it. Clearly they couldn't have filmed the whole thing. So the the manga book um, also skips over a ton of stuff that happens between Killing of the Wicked Witch and when they finally get to Glinda. And uh, I don't know, I, they could have put it in. Maybe they, he just didn't want to because it's not as um, exciting. The one thing that, that he did leave in as they go to visit Glinda is that they go to the city where all the little China people are, and that's um, kind of cool. Uh, in the book, it's a lot longer, and they have a lot of adventures there, and in the manga, it's like two pages, um, and it's just summarized where she just says, oh, we found a place where the people were made of China, and we found out these people were very delicate. When we asked if they could be mended, she, a little girl pointed out a funny clown. He was mended, and then we left. Goodbye. And that's it. <laughs> and you don't really get any more, whereas in the book there's a lot more detail. One thing about the manga that, for me, puts it in, in contrast in an inferior way to the book is that the book has a lot of narration by the author. And 
some dialogue, but not everything is told through dialogue. And then in the manga, it's all done through dialogue because there's no third-person narration that goes along with it. And for me, it ended up being very cold because of that. A lot of the humor and the thoughts that are going through Dorothy's head and then reactions from the other travelers from the Scarecrow and the Tin Woodman come through the narration. And I didn't really get that from the manga. And I think it could have been done a little more with the art, but it's not there. So there's obviously added dialogue because he didn't draw it. Um, I should say this is by David Hutchison. Sorry, I forgot to say that. And it's published by Antarctic Press. And it is called Oz, the manga. So David Hutchison come up, comes up with some new dialogue to express what's going on. But it just seemed very cold and not nearly as friendly as the book. A little sterile. And the way that the characters speak to each other seems stilted to me. Now, I will say, having read through all the Oz books, not recently, but having done it more than once, that it gets friendlier. The The land of Oz gets friendlier and quirkier as it goes along. I think Baum really hit his groove with like the third book. Um, and the dialogue in the actual book is a little bit stilted. But, you know, it was the turn of the century, and I think the way people talked was a little bit different from the way we would talk now. So he hasn't tried to recast the dialogue as the way people would actually talk. Uh, but there is some stuff that's a little bit anachronistic, like I say anachronistic in the way that Dorothy behaves. When she's setting out to go to the Emerald City, she's walking and she sees these strange things. Um, the, the Witch of the East's castle, which is falling apart, and there are these strange kind of um, tubes pipelines that go across Oz and it's it's weird looking and she has to muster up her courage to go through them. This isn't in the book at all by the way this is just in the manga and she kind of looks and she has to run past it and she says to herself alright you can do this and you know that's a, that's a 20th century phrase Dorothy would never have said that in the actual book uh, so there are some things like that. Also, I am a little disturbed at the way she's drawn some of the time because she looks like a typical, as I said, a manga girl with ginormous eyes and a little tiny nose. And There are a couple places where I think, given that she's supposed to be a little girl, her shape is sexualized a little bit, which is kind of odd because in the book she is a little girl. You know, she's not 15. Um, and I think a lot of people's perceptions of the way Dorothy was as a girl were colored by the movie of course because Judy Garland was older but in the book she's not supposed to be a teenager she's just a small girl so that worries me just a little bit um on the whole I think he did a good job of sticking with what was in the book and not doing what the movie did in some of these cases and it's fun to see it through somebody else's eyes I wish it was in color of course, you know, since it's a manga paperback, it's all in black and white except for the covers. And part of the joy of Oz is that it is this bright, colorful place as opposed to Kansas. So when you're trying to draw a distinction between what gray, gray Kansas looks like as opposed to what Oz looks like, there's only so many ways you can do that. And granted, in his drawings of Kansas, it's a lot darker. And then Oz is very light and there's a lot more... Uh, growing things that are around and beautiful big open sky and lots of weird animals and uh, you know open vistas and stuff like that but it still doesn't look that much different so 
you know, that was one of the things, of course, that the movie did so magnificently, was to show you the contrast between the way Kansas was for Dorothy and the way Oz was for her, which, of course, kind of brings up the question, why the hell did she want to go back to Kansas so much? And um, he, uh, Baum kind of fixed that <laughs> in later Oz books by making it really clear that, yeah, Oz was the place to be, and you didn't want to be in Kansas anyway. Um, and I'll read you just a little bit from the beginning of the actual book, because I think this is how he wanted it to be perceived. When Dorothy stood in the doorway and looked around, she could see nothing but gr- the great gray prairie on every side. Not a tree nor a house broke the broad sweep of flat country that reached to the edge of the sky in all directions. The sun had baked the plowed land into a gray mass with little cracks running through it. Even the grass was not green, for the sun had burned the tops of the long blades until they were the same gray color to be seen everywhere. Once the house had been painted, but the sun blistered the paint and the rains washed it away, and now the house was dull and gray as everything else. When Aunt Em came to live there, she was a young, pretty wife. The sun and wind had changed her, too. They had taken the sparkle from her eyes and left them a sober gray. They had taken the red from her cheeks and lips, and they were gray also. She was thin and gaunt and never smiled now. So this is where Dorothy lives, and I don't quite get that from the manga because Aunt M doesn't really look like that here, um, and you miss a little bit of that background to it. Um, also, the description that he gives in the book of the, the house that they live in, this poor, poor little rundown farmhouse, is not really here, and it clearly wasn't there in the, the movie where she had, you know, it was a bigger thing, and it was a big farm with barns and stuff like that. So... Um, I think for any Oz story to be really successful, you need more of a contrast between where she was in Kansas and where she is in Oz. And uh, you also don't get, which is a very effective thing in the book, and of course they didn't deal with it at all in the movie, the trick that Oz plays on people that when they enter the Emerald City, they have to put green glasses on because he wants everyone to think that the whole city is made out of emerald. And it's just a trick because it's not. It's made out of beautiful things, but not everything is green. And because it's in black and white, you you don't get that. And I don't even think they actually address that in this. I have to go and check now to see whether uh, that's really in here. Uh, I don't know. I don't think it's in here at all. Um... The, the cool thing about um, the, the witch in the manga that I liked is that she is much more like she is in the book. She has only one eye, and I'm pretty sure that they were close. Uh, yeah, that's right. She's only got one eye here. And uh, she's a lot more vicious in what she tries to do. That When she sees them coming to, to kill her, she sends bees and she sends wolves. And um, at the last resort, she sends the winged monkeys to, to get Dorothy. And also she keeps Dorothy in prison because she's afraid to kill her. And in the movie, that's only, you know, like an hour. And in the book, it's like a couple of weeks. And she also has the cowardly lion imprisoned there also. And then the way that this all happens at the end is not that her friends mount a rescue, is that Dorothy um, gets really pissed off at her <laughs> and throws the bucket of water on her. Um, which is great, you know, she kind of takes things into her own hands and does that, and she says, oh, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to melt you. How could I know that you were going to melt? And she does melt away. That's the end of it. And then Dorothy kind of takes charge. Now, here's a really interesting thing. Um, She melts her, and then the the witch's advisor comes and says, I guess you're mistress of the house. 
And then she says, it certainly looks that way, doesn't it? Come on, we're going to free the lion and all of the Winkies. After we're done helping them, you're going to help me. And the next time we see Dorothy with her friends, she is wearing uh, a dress that is very similar to what the witch was wearing. So it's kind of odd how she goes through this transformation and is, you know, is it supposed to be a metaphor for her growing up? Or just that now she's kind of taken matters into her own hands and she's become her own person. She looks much more adult than she did before. She really doesn't look like a little girl anymore. Um, In the book, that's not the case at all. She doesn't go through some kind of growth spurt there. And in fact, upon reading the book again, I was struck by how often she cries in this book. Uh, You know, she's always crying and she still cries after this is over. She's breaking into tears at the drop of a hat, so... Um, in the book, that doesn't happen at all. Anyway, I did like this. I really did. But it just didn't speak to me. And it didn't have the warmth and the fun that I felt the original book had. And certainly the following Oz books where things get um, a lot more wacky. And um, Dorothy is kind of a miniature flapper and very hilarious to all the people that she talks with. So I, I think it's cool and I think it's great that People continue to have an interest in Oz. I talked about the Eric Shanauer book before. That was also really cool. And apparently there's supposed to be more coming out after this. So I would like to see what he tackles next. Um, And I think that you can get this in the store. Yeah, it's about 15 bucks and you can get it anywhere. Oh, it's Pocket Manga by Antarctic Press. David Hutchison, Oz the Manga. Okay, I think I'm about out of breath now and my head's getting really stuffed again. So that's going to be it. I will definitely try to get another episode up before it's time to do the WonderCon thing. But in the meantime, please go read the Ditko thing and tell me um, what the hell you think about it. And I will probably be scanning some more of it um, and putting it up as I can get to it. I'm not going to scan any essays because nobody wants to read that much. Uh, on a PDF, but I might do a page or two, and I think the static is going to be really interesting. So until next time, Ditko hands.